like our listeners haven't seen Forget Paris. for lunch the show where aviv paints my nightmares with rape and murder oh wow what a what a sales pitch for the show (laughs) welcome come in i'm journalist Lindsay tucker as i mentioned i'm here with scary guy aviv rubenstein (laughs) horrible horrible (laughs) intro thank you very much i got Um, you how are you Lindsay? other than Horribly frightened. Horrib- I am horribly frightened. I'm doing all right. I started a new job this week and it's been great. It's been busy. I also, you hurt your back. I hurt my back. I don't know how. Oh, how'd you hurt your back? I don't know. I, don't I just know. woke up yesterday and I have like severe, severe pain in my back. Well, he, I'm here to be another pain in your ass. As always. As always. So, what is this show other than me painting your nightmares? <laughs> this is the show where we serve up the, as I like to say, snackable meanings behind your favorite songs, although sometimes they're more like moldy, decrepit, disturbing mm-hmm. snacks. Moldy, decrepit, disturbing snacks. Once again, selling the show real well. <laughs> Murdery snacks. Murdery snacks. The true stories behind your favorite songs and artists and yeah things that you didn't know you needed to know about music that's what we're here for that's what we're here for famous monsters continues (laughs) uh with part two of our phil specter story there will be a couple other songs associated with this episode but we could call this you've lost this love and feel you've lost that love and feel in part two and or be my baby and or to know him is to love him i think to know him is to love him is the official song of this episode we'll listen to it don't worry i feel confused but okay so because i never with love and feeling like we never really got to the famous monster part now we're just jumping to another song another song same guy this this is love and great this is love and feeling part two but we're gonna talk about a lot of other songs Okay, Aviv has a format problem. You, I, have to the a, format. I have a format solution. <laughs> you suck at sticking to the format. <laughs> um, so, before we do that, this week, there's some mailbag. From Dan, friend of the show, Dan. He says, Lindsay's version of Hallelujah that she played is unacceptable. Well, excuse me, Dan. That's it. That's all he said. I'm not going to take advice from somebody who got COVID. After getting vaccinated. After getting vaccinated. Yeah, it started with an also. Sunday at at 6.35 p.m., I get a text. Apropos of nothing, also, that version of Hallelujah, of Hallelujah that Lindsay likes is unacceptable. <laughs> you know what? Dan. Fine. I accept the criticism because. Because. I get it. It's, it's a little chuggy. <laughs> It is a it's it's a it's a bit <laughs> also from listener Jody Pazanisi. She sent us a link for McSweeney's, which is Toto's Africa by way of Ernest Hemingway. And it's 
as if Ernest Hemingway wrote Toto's Africa. I'll, I'll read a little snippet. This is by Anthony Sams. We should put this on our blog, except we don't have a blog. I'm not running the blog with everything else I'm doing. I'm, I'm not running the blog with everything <laughs> I'm doing. Okay, well, we need someone, Jody, to run our Jody, blog. Jody, can you run our blog? At the airport, <laughs> the young man heard far-off drums echoing in the night. He imagined the young woman in the plane sitting still, hearing whispers of a quiet conversation near the rear of the fuselage. He glanced down at his father's wristwatch. 12.30, the flight was on time. The plane's wings were moonlit and reflected the stars. The moonlight had guided him, guided him there toward the salvation. He had stopped an older man along the way, hoping to find some long-forgotten words or perhaps an ancient melody for such occasion. The old man had said nothing at first and instead started, stared cryptically into the sodden earth. Then he raised his head and, <laughs> raised his head and turned slowly. Hurry, boy. It's waiting there for you, the old man said. This is fun. This is that's, fun. I like that's it. That's about half of it. I can read the whole thing. No. The plane was almost gliding. <laughs> I said no. <laughs> I know you said no. Um, and lastly, but not leastly, we have a little update from listener Sonia Corey Missio. She says, we, we had invited her on the show uh, in our Leonard Cohen episode because to talk about Taylor to talk about Taylor but she says so my other masters was in library and information science technically making me a librarian despite never working in a library do you want me to ask for any of the University of Toronto librarians who can help you out with the Cohen papers I can't promise anything but I can ask uh yes 100% yes yes that this literally just came in while we were recording the other thing Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Yes, please. Yes. Yes, please. And you're still invited on the show. Okay. So today we are going to do part two of the Phil Spector story, which includes You've Lost That Love and Feeling, which we talked in depth about last week and some other songs. What can you can you catch us up with where we left off with the You've Lost That Love and Feeling story? Sure. Here's where we left off. A bunch of white guys appropriated soul music from black culture and came up with You've Lost That Love and Feeling so that they could capitalize on the sound of... The Four Tops? The Four Tops. Simultaneously, Phil Spector invented the Wall of Sound, which is layering a bunch of instruments on top of each other to create a fuller audio experience. experience. And um, Phil Spector, we're waiting for you to tell us, is a murderer. Yep. Nailed it. Uh, except for it was a bunch of white guys and one white woman. Okay. So we're going to start with the Phil Spector story. Today is just going to be mostly the Phil Spector story with some, well, no, that's a lie. We're going to start with the Phil Spector story. Harvey Philip Spector was born December 26, 1939. If Benjamin. your name is Harvey, new rule, if your name's Harvey, just go to jail. I love that name. My, my, my childhood pediatrician's name, no, when I switched from pediatrician to, wait, when I switched from a pediatrician to like a big boy doctor, my doctor's name was Harvey. It sounds like he needs to go to jail. Probably. Uh, Harvey Phillips Spector was born on December 26, 1939 to Benjamin and Bertha Spector. They were first-generation Jewish immigrants in the Bronx in New York City. Uh, Benjamin's father arrived from Ukraine in 1913, and he anglicized his last name from Specter with a K to Specter with a C in 1927, 
on his naturalization papers. So he's already lying about who he is. Already. He was born a liar. He's born a liar. Yeah. So Bertha's father also anglicized his name to George Spector. Bertha's father? Uh-huh. So Benjamin's father anglicized his name to Spector, and Bertha's father also anglicized his name to Spector. They're both last names Spector? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I told you this is a weird one. Um, okay. in, 20, in 1923, the papers of both were witnessed by the same person. So, like, the naturalization paperwork was witnessed by the same person named Isidore Spector. What the hell? And I don't know a single Spectre. Well, I know I know one. <laughs> um, the similarities in name and background of the grandfathers have led to speculation by Phil that his parents were first cousins. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. You've lost that <laughs> love and feeling. Oh. We're in the first paragraph of this, of this episode. <laughs> According to NPR, Phil Spector's sister was institutionalized. And was she institutionalized because she needed help or because women are just crazy emotional beings that need to get locked up? Um, that uh, interesting question. There is almost no documentation of this even happening. Like it is just said in passing. So depression runs in this family, which you're about to find out. So I have a feeling it was like a little a column A and a little a column B. But when Phil was a child, his sister was institutionalized. And in April of 1949, Phil Spector's dad committed suicide. Phil was nine. And on his gravestone were the words inscribed, Ben Spector, father, husband, to know him is to love him. All right. So far, so good? Sure, I'm following. <laughs> to know him is to love him. To know him is to love him. In 1953, Phil Spector's mom moved the family to L.A., where she found work as a seamstress, and Phil attended John Burroughs Junior High in Fairfax High School. He learned how to play the guitar, and he performed a song called Rock Island Line in a talent show at Fairfax High. And in doing that, he joined a loose-knit community of aspiring musicians, and this was 1953 so there aren't a lot of those at this point um and he formed a group called the teddy bears with this guy nelson marshall lieb and annette kleinbard okay so he's a kind of a child right now he's a child right now he's 14 years old now during this period so remember 13 years old ish 13 to 18 during this period, record producer Stan Ross, who owned Gold Star Studios in Hollywood, this Gold Star Studios that would eventually house the Echo Chamber, Stan Ross, co-owner of Gold Star Studios in Hollywood, began to tutor Phil Spector in record production, and he like was a big influence in, the, in Spector's eventual production style. How did he get this tutoring mentor? Didn't really say. It just seemed like Phil was really interested in this kind of stuff. And for for as few garage bands as there were in 1953, 54, 55, I feel like there were even fewer people who were like very interested in how music was produced, right? So it's like an apprenticeship. It's it's basically any trade. As though he was wanted to be an engineer, like a like a mechanical engineer or something, right? Okay. So in 1958, so Spectre is around 17, 
the teddy bears recorded a song that Phil wrote called Don't You Worry My Little Pet. So, a, a, I don't like that. Mm, mm, you shouldn't. <laughs> and he signed a two or three singles recording deal with Era Records. So, Era decided to pay for that recording and two to three more, just single songs, not albums. You're making it sound so easy. Well, in 1958, it was kind of easy. I told that story about the MC5 just getting a phone call about opening for the Velvet Underground in the 60s. So Right. At their next session, the Teddy Bears recorded another song that Phil had written, which would become their first number one hit. And also the seventh number one hit on Billboard ever, because Billboard was still relatively new. Hmm. Right? So it's pretty a pretty sizable accomplishment for a 17 18 year old right yeah that is and that song is called to know him is to love him i knew we were gonna get there would you like to hear to know him is to love him okay this teddy bear is just not it literally almost said and then he wrote a song about it but i didn't because <laughs> i didn't want to spoilerize anything <laughs> yeah it's true did you know or did you just guess i did not know okay good guess educated guess based on it was a hypothesis being a monster (laughs) yes my body's having a physical reaction to this bullshit it's not a bad song but knowing that it was written based on his father's epitaph is super fucked up I bring love to him. Everyone says there'll come a day when I walk alongside of him. Yep. This could be about a romantic partner or Jesus. Or a stalker. Or a stalker. All songs about love are about stalking. (laughs) Love is just an accepted form of stalking. Well, it's it's almost as though you know where this story is (laughs) going. Ooh, there's a late snare hit. Drives me crazy. That's to know him is to love him. The seventh number one hit ever on Billboard. The the seventh. Okay. Yeah. There had only been six number one hits before them. So. And then the Beatles covered it. Did the Beatles cover it? To know her is to love her. Really? Same fucking song. I had no idea. Well, the Beatles and Phil Spector worked together quite a bit. Yeah. This is the same fucking song. Holy shit. (laughs) 
pop go to the Beatles. So this is, I mean, this makes sense, right? This is like them doing a cover of a very popular song. Right. Num- the number one Billboard hit. Yeah. So, oh man, that makes it kind of worse. Um, so this is, <laughs> this, is a, it though. this is a quote from Lou Bedell, uh, who was a music executive at the time. He said, mm-hmm. I'll do a voice. The kid became so haughty. Before the song was a hit, Phil used to come in and say, anything doing today, Mr. Bedell? And then after it was a hit, he walked in and say, hey, Lou, baby, we doing good? He started calling her, hey, you, you never saw such a complete change. All right. All right. So he turned into a... Kind of a dick. Kind of a Kind of a dick. Um... The Teddy Bears released several more more songs, including a whole album called The Teddy Bears Sing, but it failed to reach the top 100 in U.S. sales, and the group broke up in 1959. So they had only been together for like a few years. Okay. They had a little blip on the radar. A little blip on the radar. One huge hit that, that made Phil Spector think that he, his shit didn't stink. Mm. So... And then he fed it to children. Uh, no, he didn't feed shit to children. <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where the story goes. At the McMartin Preschool. Yeah. So in 1959, Spectre met a dude named Lester Sill, who was a former promotion guy. And he was a mentor to a pair of record producers named Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller produced everything from hound dog for elvis to stuck in the middle with you in the 90s clowns to the left of me jokers to the right so we have a lot of names right jerry lieber mike mike stoller are producers they did hound dog stuck in the middle with you and everything in between lester sill was a promo guy and he and he had a partner named lee hazelwood and they supported phil specter's next musical project called the specters three Okay. And so now we're in 1960. In 1960, Lester Sill arranged for Spectre to work at as an apprentice with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller in New York. And Spectre co-wrote a bunch of songs including with them, including Spanish Harlem. And he also worked as a session musician playing the guitar solo on, on Broadway. On Broadway. <sighs> So even though you're, you know, it's not as difficult as it is now back then to make a name for yourself in music or to get a big to get some kind of break in music, he's consistently associated with these really big songs. Yeah, he's co-writing, he's playing as a session musician, he's producing. He's like a he's like a wunderkind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so his first true recording artist and project as a producer was Ronnie Crawford. Spectre's production work included Laverne Baker, Ruth Brown, Billy Storm, The Top Notes, which was the original recording of Twist and Shout. Mm-hmm. Um, also and a Beatles cover. Also a Beatles cover, right? And uh, Lieber and Stoller recommended that Phil Spector produce Karina Karina, uh, which reached number nine in 1961. And uh, he later produced Pretty Little Angel Eyes for Curtis Lee, which made it to number seven. So he's still in his teens and is just like cranking out hits. Okay. And so he's he's living in New York. No, he's in LA. He's living in LA. Yeah. He's about 18. So this is between the ages of 18 and 21. Okay. So by the age of 21, Spectre was a millionaire. And this is in 1961. 
He was a millionaire. And he had he was responsible for producing 20 consecutive hits. Shit. Yeah. So he he's he was very talented. He's an evil genius. He's an evil genius. And he started his record label, Phil's Record, with Lester Sills, right? Phil's with a Z. No, P H I L L E S. Phil's. I know. So it's a it's a portmanteau of Phil and Sills. But still, Sills was out of the picture by 62, 63. He just like left to do other things. Murders. I don't think Lester did murders. Though his name is Lester, so you can't really ever be you sure. You really can't roll that out. Yeah. <laughs> the um, Lester the molester. In 63, <laughs> Spectre got married to Annette Marar, who is the lead vocalist of the Spectres 3. But this is not to be confused with Annette Kleinbard, who was the singer of the Teddy Bears. Okay, say their names again. I already forgot who they are. They Annette, sound the same. Annette Marar was the vocalist of okay. the Spectres Three, okay. and Annette Kleinbard. Annette One and Annette Two. So he so he married Annette Two, <laughs> and he named another record company after her, Annette Records. Annette Two Records. Annette Two Records, and in the same with year, with a Z, records, records with a Z. Yeah, Z, Z Records. <laughs> Z is silent. Um, and in the same year, so 1963. He released Be My Baby by the Ronettes, which went to number two. Sing it for me. Uh, we're, we, I'm not going to have to sing it for you because we're going <laughs> to listen to it. But this, is, this has been considered the greatest pop is song it ever. Be written. my, be yep. my, be my little song. baby. See, I sing for you. Yeah, great. <laughs> but you don't appreciate <laughs> my all, gifts. We all love it. Um, so here is Be My Baby. Great song. One of my all-time favorite songs. So this episode is a three-way grudge match between You've Lost That Love and Feeling, To Know Him Is To Love Him, and Be My Baby as the songs of the episode.
Oh, yeah, nice triplet fill. Okay. So, from thegrunge.com, uh, the Ronettes were led by Veronica or Ronnie Bennett. So, Bennett's father, this is from thegrunge.com, was Irish American and her mother was African American and Cherokee. And per the Herald, uh, in her, this is per the Herald. And in her memoir, her memoir is called Be My Baby, colon, How I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness, or My Life as a Fabulous Ronette. That's the title of the book. My Life as a Fabulous Ronette. My memoir is going to be called My Life as a Fabulous Podcast. Tuckett. <laughs> Yes. Lynzette. Um, Bennett wrote of how she never really fit in with other races as a child. This is a quote. I still didn't feel like I fit in with any one group. The black never appreciated me as one of them. The white kids knew I wasn't white and the Spanish kids didn't talk to me because I didn't speak Spanish. From The Guardian, Bennett learned to sing using the fantastic echo in the lobby of the apartment building where her grandmother lived. Her cousins were her backup singers. This is a quote from her. I'd go up to my grandmother's and get up on the coffee table and start singing. My family would all come and watch. The signature were the were inspired early on by attempts to yodel like Hank Williams with her grandmother. Um, before you even said get up on the coffee table, I was already reminded of myself because I used to practice my singing in my mom's bathroom. Yeah, bathroom echo is great. Uh, in her shower, she had a stand-up shower that was like probably from the 70s. It was this putrid yellow color mm. with like black accents. Oh, yeah. I can picture it now. <laughs> and in the corner of this, you know, it's a rectangular square-ish shower. And then in the corner, there was, um, you know, like a half circle, circular seat mm -hmm. that I guess thousands of people put their butt on. Um, <laughs> You're painting me a picture here. Go on. <laughs> I used to stand on it and sing. And get the good bathroom reverb. Yes. Usually yeah. my country tis of thee. Wow. <laughs> um, because that was a song that we had to use for um, play auditions at my school. Yeah. And the land where my father died part, <laughs> I bet gets really good reverb. Oh, uh, yeah. This is from BBC Culture. The title of the article is Why Be My Baby is the Perfect Pop Song by Claire Thorpe. My favorite story about the Ronettes Be My Baby isn't that the iconic intro is a fluke, although that is a fact. The drummer, Hal Blaine, accidentally missed a beat and created one of the most recognizable three seconds in music. It's a wonderful bit of pop mythology. So we can talk about that right, right now, right? So, boom, ba bum, ga is yeah. a mistake, right? But just a beautiful mistake. Nor is it that when friend of the show, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, first heard the song on his car radio, he was so taken aback by its brilliance that he had to pull over. Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. He pulled over. He called Charlie Manson and he was like, Charlie, <laughs> let's do it. You got to hear the song. Uh, or that on a night out in London, John Lennon asked the band's singer, Ronnie Bennett, to sing a little bit of Be My Baby into his ear. And in, in her words, he almost passed out. Because he was, it was so erotic. I guess so. I mean, this is this is a good. If someone sang "Be My Baby" into my ear, I would also almost pass out. <laughs> the writer's favorite story about the Ronettes "Be My Baby" is that when nineteen-year-old Ronnie was in the studio to record the song, she quietly took herself away from the producer Phil Spector and a packed room full of musicians, and went to the ladies' room to practice her vocals. It was there that the be my baby's famous woes and ooze were born people talk about quote people talk about 
how great the echo chamber was at Gold Star Studios, but they never heard the sound in the ladies' room. She wrote in her 1990 memoir, famously titled Be My Baby, How I Survived Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness. Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness. The life of any woman. Yeah. Uh, This is Claire Thorpe still. Every time I hear Be My Baby now, I think of Ronnie in front of that mirror, teasing her hair a little higher, sweeping sweeping on another coat of mascara, and casually honing one of the best pop vocals ever recorded. Clocking in at just over two and a half minutes, Be My Baby might just be the perfect pop song. Half a century after nearly crashing his car because of it, Brian Wilson still thought so. It's the greatest record ever produced, he told the New York Times in 2013. It's not just a great song, but an incredibly familiar one. You'll know that famous intro, even if you think you don't. Maybe, like me, you first heard it in the opening credits of Dirty Dancing. This is still Claire Thorpe. (laughs) A jerky black and white montage of jiving, writhing bodies. That's definitely not me. Perhaps you recognize it from the beginning of Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, where it plays over grainy home video footage of Harvey Keitel. Or it might be familiar from one of the dozens of records that have lifted those opening drum beats over the years in over 60 years of life. Oh, I'm sorry, nearly 60 years of life. It's 58 years old. It has not just had a second coming, but several. Like all the best pop music, Be My Baby is simple, but only on the surface. Ronnie Bennett says, it's a tough record, but it has a soft side, like the Ronettes. So the way that the song was created, Ronnie Bennett and her two bandmates flew out to LA. They recorded the song at Gold Star Studios, which is the birthplace of the Wall of Sound, all about last last episode, right? Wall of Sound, Echo Chamber, et cetera, et cetera. This is all in this place. And Phil Spector, who was, as we said last episode, notorious for rehearsals and doing take after take after take after take, he insisted on 42 rehearsal takes before he finally started recording. The song. Yes. So he so they had to rehearse the song 42 times before he would even record. Okay. Among the backup singers were Darlene Love, who was um, Bill Medley's mistress, as well as Sonny Bono and his new girlfriend, a then yet an as yet unknown teenage singer named Cher. How old was Cher? Cher. So Cher is 75 and this song is 58 years old. So she was like 17. Okay. As for that iconic intro drummer, Hal Blaine, who died in at age 90 a couple years ago, claims it was an accident. I may have missed that second beat, he told NPR in 2001. So Ronnie's vocals were the final brick in the wall of sound, and he made her rehearse them for three days straight. I'm calling bullshit. You missed the second beat once, not every fucking time. Especially if you recorded, you practiced it 42 times. I think likely in one of the rehearsal takes, he missed the beat and people liked it. Okay. Ronnie's vocals were the final brick in Spectre's wall of sound and he made her rehearse them for three days straight. Like most girl groups of the time, the Ronettes didn't get a lot of say in what they recorded, but by taking herself to the bathroom and coming up with those vocals, Ronnie found a way to carve out her own creative space in the record. One of the Ronettes' most famous fans was Amy Winehouse, who channeled the spirit of Ronnie Bennett in both her looks and raw, raspy vocals. And Bennett now sings Amy Winehouse's song Back to Black at her own shows as a, as a After tribute. After she died? Yeah, okay. as a tribute to Amy dying. Noel Gallagher of Oasis yep. had 
Be My Baby for the first dance at his wedding. And he chose the song, not just one of his Desert Island Discs on the Desert Island Disc podcast, but the one record he would save from the pile. Mm. What's yours? What's my Desert Island Disc? The one record you'd save from the pile. Um, Maybe the first Shore Juror record, which is a record that no one's heard, really. Have I? Mm -mm, I don't think so. It's just a bunch of friends of mine from Philly, but I love that record so much. That or Brother Sister by Me Without You or The Teeth, You're My Lover Now, which is the song, the record I talk about on the Pick a Disc podcast. When is that coming out? I think August. So like right around the time that this episode drops. Listen in. Listen in. I'm on Pick a Disc either last week or this week or next week. One of the weeks. While still married to Annette Marar, Phil Spector began having an affair with Veronica Bennett. While married to Annette too, Phil Spector started... Having an affair. Getting his dick wet inside Ronnie. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the nice way to say that. <laughs> Having an affair with Veronica Bennett, they got married, and she was later known as Ronnie Spector. He left Annette, too, for Ronnie? For, for a Ronette, yes. So, wow, wow. Uh, yeah, Phil and Ronnie married in 1968, so five years after Be My Baby came out. Okay. He's moving fast. He's moving. He's moving fast. Cause, cause he married Annette in 63. So they divorced and he remarried by 68. <sighs> okay. Thanks to King James. Sure. I don't think thanks. I don't, I don't, I, you know what? I don't, I don't think we can blame the King James Bible for this one. <laughs> this is from Ronnie's book via the sun, the newspaper in the UK. Ronnie claims that Phil was prone to drunken outbursts from the beginning and recalls how she had to hide in the bathroom with her mom on her wedding night following an argument about money with Phil. Phil apparently accused her of only being after his money and started screaming at her with, quote, saliva dripping down the side of his mouth and eyes bulging out like a wild coyote. Ew, okay, this is just depressing. Why did she feel that she had to go through with the marriage? I think that they had already gotten married. (laughs) Oh, 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 oh. Terrified, she and her mother locked themselves in a bathroom while Spectre tried to burst the door down. Her mother said, Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie. This is a quote. Ronnie, 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 what did you marry? Oh, God. And the singer sobbed. A famous monster. Yeah, a famous monster. And, the, and Ronnie sobbed all night long. This is all according to her book. This is incredibly sad. Yes. So, it... it, it It gets worse from here. So after their wedding, Ronnie and Phil both agreed to adopt a mixed race son and raise him together. His name's Dante. However, Phil got a little crazier and more bizarre things would occur. So Christmas 1971, Phil surprises Ronnie with her present. Adopted twins. No, no. What? Twin puppies? Nope. Phil, (laughs) Phil adopted twins without ever having a conversation with Ronnie. That's a thing that they let people do. They just let a man adopt twins without his wife's consent. Quote, we were in the car and all of a sudden we pull up to the mansion and there's a fountain and there are these twins running around, these blonde haired, blue eyed twins. What? I'm saying, what is this? And he said, Merry Christmas. It's an Aryan carnival. Uh Uh-huh. He never I got it for you. This is his, this is her quote from p- to people. He never said, "Ronnie, what do you think we should do? Should we adopt twins?" Nothing. Everything was a surprise, and no woman <laughs> wants to l- wants live children as a surprise. 
no woman wants a lie. No, no, that's right. Definitely not. That's why we invented abortion. Yes. Uh, the wo- <laughs> this is a quote from her book. The worst. We're just gonna roll over that one. No, I, I, I have <laughs> as a man, I have nothing that I can say about abortion. Okay, except that you support it wholeheartedly. Yeah, your body, your choice. Quote: The worst part about Phil adopting twins was that I knew it was just another one of his schemes to keep me at home. Of course. He thought that if having one kid didn't keep me chained from the house, maybe having three of them would. Jesus. Phil set up his 23-room mansion with chain-link fences, barbed wire, and intercoms in every room, making it nearly impossible for Ronnie to leave. There was... Okay, but the chain-link fences weren't inside. Just the Uh, intercom was? Yes. No, the chain-link... I believe... The chain link fences and barbed wire were on the outside, (laughs) but the intercoms were in every room. There's like a list problem here, but yes, Uh, making it nearly impossible. Did he treat his other wives like this? So he only had one other wife, Annette, number two, and it doesn't seem like he did because he also was not a famous. I mean, he was like famous, but not as famous, and she wasn't famous. This all came from his jealousy that she was like going to leave him because she was popular. Mm, right okay. so so it didn't seem to be as much of a problem with annette but i found one quote which was from a an unauthorized biography of phil specter from 1989 called you've lost that love and feeling <laughs> yeah no it's called he's a rebel colon phil specter rock and roll's legendary producer so this was a 19 19- 89 unauthorized biography released about specter's life and marar was quoted as saying that he quote thought of everyone he worked with as a puppet i love him but he treats everyone he works with as a puppet okay so that's uh that's her quote that's her quote from that unauthorized biography of him so like clearly there was something there right yeah but this is the weird part What's the weird part? Annette Marar went missing. What? In 2009. So she left music in this after the Spectres 3 broke up. She left music and she went on to become a school teacher. And then in 2009, she was living in Valley Glen, California with her son. And she just went missing. So this is from NBC Los Angeles from July 20th, 2009. I'm listening. Music producer and prison inmate Phil Spector's wife, first wife, was missing from her home in, near Van Nuys, California, police said Monday. Annette Marar, who was 65 at the time, was reported missing Friday, said Officer Karen Rayner of the Los Angeles Police Department. She's five feet two inches, and hey. she may exhibit family members told TV station that... Marar may, quote, exhibit possible confusion. Oh, no. So she, in a, in a weird connection, she, like Bill Medley's wife and son, she also had a son named Damien. Oh, my God. But here's the thing. What's the thing? They never, there's n- absolutely nowhere on the internet is there any evidence of what happened to her. She never got found? She never got found. She never turned up dead. She 
maybe showed up safe and sound and no one called the newspaper. But all I can find is a couple of news sources saying Phil Spector's first wife missing and then nothing after that. I think she went with the Howards on their eternal highway journey. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this is from Distractify. She was believed to have possibly wandered off from her home in a confused mental state, but it wasn't ever reported if she was found afterwards. Wow. That's just Ah! weird. Didn't she have kids? She did. She had her son named Damien. (laughs) He ate her. Well, yeah. So what are we thinking? She is a victim of a cannibal. Or Phil from prison, which we'll talk about how Phil winds up in prison in just a minute, who, you know, threatened Ronnie with bodily harm if she ever left him. Maybe 50 years later, 40 years later, after they divorced, he finally made good on taking care of Annette, too. <laughs> yeah, he had to get all of his loose ends tied up. Yeah, before, right. From behind bars. Mm-hmm. So as the Ronettes' fame grew, so did Phil Spector's jealousy. The Beatles asked the Ronettes to support them on a U.S. tour in 66, which would be their last U.S. tour. And Spector refused to let Ronnie go. The front woman of the Ronettes. Yes, he sent one of her cousins as a replacement. So Stop. the Ronettes still no, no, no. did it. No. Holy fucking shit. Oh, yeah. this and is this so is, sad. This is before they even got married. This was in 66. What? Right? So she still married him. Okay, she still so married him, right? It's the 60s. This is some kind of yeah, emotional abuse of relationship. It's really, really bad. Super and so I want I want to like unpack specifically what he did, right? Because he is okay. the Ronettes producer and manager. Right, and he doesn't even give a shit that he's significantly hindering this tour. He's, but he's not. In his he's eyes, not. he's not. Because the Ronettes still did the tour, just without but, Ronnie, with the, with the cousin instead. Okay, but if that's like sublime with Rome. Like, do people really I, care? Okay, you're gonna, you really must use a different example. <laughs> um, it's like <laughs> Queen without Freddie Mercury. Yeah, and it's like the, the version of the Beach Boys that you saw without Brian Wilson. You yeah, still, I, still, I guess you still go. You still go, and you still bought a ticket to the Beach Boys and may have even gotten there without knowing that the singer wasn't the real singer and in and phil specter's eyes he's the creative force behind it all anyway they're just Mm -hmm. his puppets right okay that's like that's like a thing with him this entire time right he's he's making bill medley sing the song 84 times and he's making the ronettes rehearse 64 times before that you know and so like he doesn't he he is playing them like instruments they are instruments to him so uh as i mentioned great metaphor yeah as I mentioned, they married in 1968, April 14th. Uh, their marriage turned dark, according to the grunge. Um, and Their marriage started dark. Started what? pretty dark. But Phil's mental state changed due to his career declining, right? His, his peak was in the early and mid-60s, and he was going down. Why? Just because people had... He had, he had kind of blazed a trail in this wall of sound technique and now everyone is doing it and so you don't need phil specter anymore because you have his technique that anyone can do okay so see ya phil see ya phil uh per 
the biography, Ronnie, Ronnie wrote in her memoir how Phil would isolate her from everyone and everything she loved. He installed intercoms in every room so he knew where she was. And I swear this is true. This has been corroborated in several places. He, when he, he made her drive around, when she was driving around by herself, he made a life-size doll that looked like him that she had to leave in the car when she was driving around by herself. So it always looked like he was with her. And there's a scene in Forget Paris where Billy Crystal, he's a referee for basketball and mm-hmm. he's always on the road. And like so I his- haven't seen Forget Paris. <laughs> uh, excuse me. There's other people that we're talking to, Aviv. Yes, it's not true. just me and you here. Yeah, that's true. And um, Like our listeners haven't seen Forget <laughs> Paris. Okay, so yeah, so Ellen is Billy Crystal's wife, and she's like feeling worried something must have happened, like a break in, or so she gets this like safety doll Mm -hmm. that she puts in her car, and she's like giving him shit on the phone one night, and she's like, and I'm starting to have feelings for safety doll. But so this is Phil presenting (laughs) Ronnie with safety doll that just looks like Phil. How I really, really want to see a photo of this. Like, how lifelike was it? You want me is it to like s- marsh pillow or is it like a wax museum? Let me see if I can find a photo. Marsh pillow for the uninitiated is how I met your mother when oh, uh, yeah, Marshall is traveling. Lily like makes a pillow that she puts uh, Marshall's jersey on and then like puts a laptop, uh, uh, iPad for its face <laughs> so she can FaceTime him. <laughs> um, I cannot find a picture of the doll. Oh, damn. It. I can't okay. imagine that it was like public like people like knew about the doll at the time because like people like both thought it was phil yeah it was phil and ronnie it's it's exceedingly weird (laughs) okay um so quote phil had gone keep going sorry i'm just getting lars and the real girl flashbacks yes exactly quote phil had actually gone to the trouble of making a dummy of himself to watch over me when he wasn't around and watch over me he he did not so so this is this is all light and fun and then he also threatened to have her killed if she left does uh among many other insane demands um phil also made ronnie give up singing which is the thing she loved the most for sevs i didn't go anywhere this is from a rolling stone interview i never saw a movie i never did anything in california because everything was brought to me That's very sad. It's super sad. How did she get out of it? You're well. Thank you for the segue. Phil gets convicted of murder. Spoiler uh, alert. Nope, not yet. Okay. Uh, Ronnie was getting worse as the year. This is from the Grand Prest, and was driven to alcoholism. And her life, she couldn't sing. And it it wasn't until her mother Beatrice was finally able to get through to her, and they hatched a plan to help her escape in 1972. So she had been. Basically, his prisoner, if you start carried for for you, she said to Ronnie, quote, I'm your mother and I'm telling you we got to get out of here or you, my little girl. Hmm. This is a reality for so many women. It absolutely is. And in and so many women, especially like it is it is so not uncommon that there are so many women who have had to escape famous record producers. Like, like just this one little slice of the population, right? Exactly. Like like our Ke- like the R. Kelly story is strikingly similar to this, mm. and I I'm here to say we are literally. I, Hell I couldn't, no. couldn't bring myself to even do it, and I don't want to listen to any of his music. Um, so they 
hatched a plan. Bennett and her mother took three days to plan how we she'd could leave just the call mansion. her Ronnie, couldn't we? Yeah, Ronnie and her mother took three days to plan how she would leave, according to the, an interview that she did. That sounds like a plan. Three days. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, come on. If you plan to leave your house, it's just walk out the door, like. But yeah. this was this was difficult enough that it took three days. I think that's a long time to plan to leave a house. Just to leave the house. Just okay. leave the house, right? I'm like thinking of sleeping with the enemy, right? How she right. has to like wait for him to leave. Like and, a like... gone girl scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, quote, I would tell any woman, if you're in a bad relationship, you have to find someone like my mother. If it's not your mother, your best friend, one per a fight with Spectre because she was late for an AA meeting. So she, this is from her description. She describes Spectre went absolutely nuts pulled off her shoe and stuck it in his belt and screamed, let's see how far you get now. Okay. He threatened Wait, she her. was late for an AA meeting, so she, did she, she left the house for those, but like he escorted her or something? Uh, yeah, I guess she either had to drive with Phil or dummy Phil. Um, and he threatened her and told her that he would, quote, destroy her if she even thought about divorcing him. Ronnie's mother then jumped in and started screaming and hitting Phil as she and Ronnie tried to escape. Phil screamed death threats back at Ronnie, claiming he already had a coffin made for her (gasps) from solid gold with a glass top so he could keep an eye on her after she dead. Shut up, shut up, shut up! Quote, keep an eye on her after she's dead. Yeah. That is some fucked up shit, Phil. So Ronnie and her mom managed to sneak out the next day and drive straight to a divorce lawyer. <laughs> but the nightmare wasn't over. So clearly, clearly, even during the divorce process, Spectre called her all the time. Once after the divorce was finalized, Ronnie went back on tour and she was about to perform in Las Vegas. But Phil called Ronnie and claimed to have six hitmen, three black guys and three white guys to shoot her while she was on stage. And he offered That's what he told you just so you know, I have a whole mm-hmm. corral of mixed race people coming yeah. your way. Um I'm not not believing her. I'm just like no, this I, is like an oddly very specific phone call, not yes. just like I've sent out an army to murder you. It's like, well, there's three blacks and there's three whites. <laughs> right. I'm also <laughs> not not believing her and and I don't, I like hate being like, allegedly this happened and allegedly right. this happened. I just want to say like all of these accounts are from her book. Okay, great. Um, quote, I always said I'd kill you if you left me. And tonight I'm making good on that promise. In two hours, you will be assassinated on stage at the Flamingo Hotel. Okay. Ronnie works. ended up getting so drunk that she couldn't perform. She couldn't even go on stage. And then what happened? So she she bailed on the gig. Her whole her whole career, I mean like um in 1974, so she bounced around for a little bit and then in 1974 she moved back to New York and she was able to move on with her life a little bit more. In 76, Billy Joel, friend of the show, <laughs> wrote a song called Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Yeah. Which is heavily inspired by Be My Baby. And Steve Van Zant of the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band had gotten in contact with Ronnie and recommended that she cover the Billy Joel song, according to Rolling Stone. This is all according to Rolling Stone. Okay. These would be the first steps that Ronnie would take 
toward getting her life back and doing what she loved, which is singing. What's happening with her children? I don't. I mean, she has. I think she has custody of her of her kids. We talked to her kids a little later on. Okay. Quote. I didn't do any shows for seven years and I was so isolated. So when I came back with Say Goodbye to Hollywood, I was so shocked anyone even cared. When I went to play at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey in the 70s, there's Bruce up on stage and Billy Joel sitting next to me. These people idolized me and I was saying, me? So let's take a listen to Billy Joel's Say Goodbye to Hollywood. So what are you hearing? The drums. What What are the drums? Um, the delayed beat drums from the Be My Baby. Yeah. I love Billy Joel. This is a this is a really good song. Obviously, we need to do a Say Goodbye to Hollywood episode. Yeah, I mean, the second verse of Say Goodbye to Hollywood is moving on is a chance that you take every time. You try to stay together. Say a word out of line and you'll find that the friends you had are gone forever. So, like, it seems like there is this kind of isolation of in within the, the song that is either inspired by or reflective of or coincidentally coincides with Ronnie's life. And let's listen to Ronnie's version. Ronnie's version, which is a full minute and a half shorter. <laughs> so what what are we missing now? The drums. So yeah, she didn't want to like repeat her her intro from Be My Baby. When did this come out? Uh, this was in 76. When did Billy Joel release that song? Billy Joel did this in 76. And when did Ronnie do hers? 77. Okay. I love her voice. Yeah, it's fun. Also, I love the sax. Yeah, that's that's Steve Steve Van Zant and the saxophone. Okay, unfortunately, you know things are things are getting back together for Ronnie, but unfortunately, Phil held the Ronettes' royalties hostage. So for 15 years, Ronnie and the Ronettes sued Phil over the royalties to their music. Mm. So this started in the 80s, but they they took Phil to court saying that their music was being used in ways that wasn't authorized by the original record contract. So Be My Baby was used in the opening credits of Dirty Dancing, and they weren't paid. Damn. Right? Them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. And the original record contract probably had like radio license, and that's it, right? But now we have all these placements. We have TV commercials. We have movies. We have whatever. Mm. And they weren't phil was just pocketing all that money because he was the producer and the owner of the record label Mm -hmm. so the trial of for over these rights was held in 1998 and in two in 2000 the judge ordered phil specter to pay 2.6 million dollars in royalties and the ruling was thrown out in 2002 what by the first of all 2.6 isn't even a lot by today's standards it's not a lot by today's standards it feels like even, even, yeah, e- like they should be owed way more, I think. But in 2002, the ruling was thrown out by the New York Supreme Court. The judge said that the contract didn't mention synchronization rights, which were secondary rights to use the music. Do we need to explain what synchronization rights are? 
I think you should. That's kind of what I was talking about before. So there are performance rights and there are like exhibition rights, right? So exhibition rights is on the radio. Performance rights are playing it live at a concert. And then synchronization rights is repeating the song in a different piece of art. So a TV commercial, a movie, whatever. So what I'm hearing is the judge was a misogynist pig with his head up his ass. Potentially. I mean, very likely. but. In terms like like the judge is saying, well, the contracts in, were airtight. Yeah, it wasn't in the original contract, <laughs> so like there shouldn't be a. I shouldn't make a ruling under New York State's contract law. It was ruled that the Ronettes didn't control those rights unless it was stated in the contract. Um, according to the dispatch, after lawyers' fees, each member of the Ronettes took home a hundred thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Well, I guess it's better than nothing. Here's a hundred G's for your troubles. Yeah, right for. F- 40 years of music, 45 <laughs> years of music. Heartbreak and yeah. heartbreak. Um, and during her days with Phil Spector, she w- really abused alcohol. And what she said in her book is one of the things she loved most about alcohol was that it made her sleep. And when she slept, she was away from her imprisonment, which is like mm. fucking heartbreaking. And she left alcoholism. She like pried herself away from alcoholism to focus on music, right? She said, quote, later when I moved home to New York from L.A., all I thought about was getting my career back. And I said, that's it. No more drinking. And I haven't had a drink in maybe 33 years. My greatest accomplishment at that point is just being alive. Oh, well, good for her. Yeah. And so it's probably been close to 50 years at this point that she hasn't had a drink, which is great. Uh, 45 years. In 2007, the Ronettes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And to induct them, so you know how it works with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like some other famous person like gives announces you in, right? Yeah, of course. So mercifully, it was not Phil. Okay. Dennis Wilson. No. <laughs> okay. It was Keith Richards. I, I watched this live. So we're going to watch a little bit of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of the Ronettes and the speech by Keith Richards. And I'll take you back to... Uh little dark, dank little theater in London, or North of England, I think. Uh, this is 15 years ago, too. 1964. AD, not BC. <laughs> 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 I'll shut up. Um, and uh, on the road, as usual, you know, and uh, I climbed out of my, our little cubicle and I'm walking down that corridor and it's green, it smells, it's damp and it's dark, you know. And as I get to the stairwell, I start to hear these voices. I think I've already, you know, I, am I overdone it already? <laughs> but as I go down the stairwell, I hear this beautiful little chant set up by Nedra and Estelle, and I realize I'm listening to the Ronettes and then that pure, pure voice over the top singing, Be My Baby. And as I mean, I got a command performance, you know, all to myself from these. I realized, despite Jack Nietzsche's beautiful arrangements, that they could sing all their way right through a wall of sound. Burn. They didn't need burn. anything. This was seen as a burn. Because Phil is on trial at this point. They touched my heart right there and then, and they touch it still. 
And so, I guess, to cut the long story short, let me say, let's welcome on Veronica Bennett and the Ronettes. I also want to um, listen to a little bit of the 2007 performance. So this is like five minutes later, the Ronettes perform Be My Baby at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And so this is 44 years after it came out. And I just want you to hear Ronnie Ronette singing in 2007. Still killing it. After Still all killing these it, years. right? <laughs> yeah. I feel so sad though. My heart's breaking a little. Me I mean, too. she seems happy and living it, living her best life now, but how much music just... did he steal from us? And how much of her life did he steal from her? True also true. I'm being very selfish, right? Yeah. He took he as took, per usual. He took a lot of her life, but like she's such an incredible artist that what what could another seven or eight years of her in her prime have given the world right so that's kind of the end of ronnie's story ronnie is a hall of fame a rock and roll hall of fame inductee since 2007 and has taken her life back has been sober for close to 50 years and just like doesn't need phil right get it girl But back to Phil. So Spectre's final signing to his label, Phil's Records, was the husband and wife team of Ike and Tina Turner. Oh, cray. (laughs) In 66. And he considered, Spectre, considered their single Deep River Mountain High as the quintessential wall of sound and his best work, his personal masterpiece. It charted at number 88 in the United States, which is nothing to sneeze at, but you know, it's nothing compared to the string of number one hits he had. It featured Tina without Ike. It's so depressing when you're diving into something as beautiful and joyful as music, but then it's just haunted by this trail of abusive men. Yes. It's like built on the foundation of abusive men. And honestly, this is something that I am hoping to expose in this famous monsters series. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm not doing this for any kind of like Schadenfreude. Like, we propped up these horrible monsters for a really long time, and we are really, really eager to be like, well, he may have been a like a horrible person, but he gave us. You've lost that love and feeling, and I think you gotta. You can't have one without the other. You can't just enjoy a thing without taking the artist and their and their heinous acts into account. Right. So this is Deep River Mountain High. I love by this. Ike and Tina Turner. When I was a little girl, I had a so this song, A, rules. Yes. And like, you can hear the giant echo chamber on the backup singers. Yep. Yeah, so Ike and Tina probably deserve an episode of their own, but that is not this episode. In Famous Monsters? Uh, yeah. Ike, yeah. Ike is a famous monster. Yeah. 
And so is the public. Yeah, I mean, the public is complicit in all this stuff, right? Because the public yeah. looks the other way when these popular people are abusive to the women or children or people with less, with less power in their lives because we like the content that they create. So you can hear the, like, the strings, the violins playing, like echoing the bass in, in a really interesting way. This is, I would venture to say, one of the best produced records of all time, especially in this, of this era. Yeah. I'm just here for the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there sounds like a hundred backups in it. It does. I also am glad that Ike's not on this song, because fuck Ike. Fuck him so hard. We're going to hear a little bit more about Ike in this episode. Okay. Great. Yeah, that song fucking cooks. <laughs> Let's play a quick round of Does It Slap? Oh, it slaps. Oh, it slaps. So from Rolling Stone, Phil's records felt like near chaos. Violence covered in sugar and candy. Like three-minute orgasms followed by oblivion. That is a quote from Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Bruce. He said it in his 2012 South by Southwest keynote speech, quote, and Phil's greatest lesson was sound. Sound is its own language. So I will probably come back to this, but mm -hmm. was Bruce one of, so after um, Spectre gets convicted, then all these artists are like, we're like coming out and being conflicted about it. And some people were like, nope, he's yeah, a fucking fuck monster. This guy, yeah. And then other people were like, oh, I'm having a hard time because A and B. And it's like, nope, it's not. It's It seems like not black, Bruce is definitely trying to toe the line, especially because Born to Run was heavily influenced by Spectre's wall of sound. So it's like a little bit of like biting the hand that feeds him creatively and monetarily if he's just like, fuck Phil, but fuck Phil. But who cares also? I like, agree. whoops. Yeah, I mean, in 2012, there's no reason for, for anyone to stand up and be like, Phil Spector was great. Like, I was super heavily influenced by reporting of Matt Taibbi, and then I found out that, you know, yeah. he's a misogynist Not asshole, great. and yeah. that was that. Yeah, and but I think, like, you, no one is ever just one thing. And so it's, it's really, you know, I, it feels like in this speech, at least, Springsteen's kind of wringing his hands a little bit, which is a shame because I like Bruce. Yeah, this is a whole larger question. I know. It's... It, it is making me think about cancel culture and how, yeah, nobody is one thing. But I think also at some point, the whole idea of accountability and not propping up oppressive systems mm -hmm. and the atrocities that are underneath is more important. I agree. I think, I mean, I think that no matter how good any of the songs that he produced is, the second he did something fucked up, he should have his career should have been over and he should have been in jail and but you and you can say like i i can still listen to michael jackson and ha I, I just have to think to myself like wow this is a really great song by a really horrible person that should have you know that was fighting a lot of demons himself and uh, and passed right. those demons along to many other people and it's sad that we live in this system right this song reminds me of a shining example of why humanity is so fucked up. Mm -hmm. 
In March 1974, so right around the time that the divorce was getting settled, Spectre was in a near-fatal car accident in Hollywood. And was he alone? Sorry? Was he alone? He was alone. <laughs> he was okay. with the dummy. He was with the dummy. <laughs> no, he wasn't with the dummy. He was alone. Um, and, but it resulted in him becoming more and more reclusive. So this is from Rolling Stone. He was thrown from the windshield of the car and nearly declared dead at the scene. And it took hours of surgery to keep him alive, as well as more than 700 stitches in his head, face, and more than 400 stitches to the back of his head. I mean, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Let's just say that, right? (laughs) There's anyone who deserved to get 700 stitches in his face. It's Phil Spector. Uh, This is from Psychology Today from Stephen Diamond, who's a PhD. He suffered severe injuries to his head, face, and scalp. Soon after, he took to sporting flamboyant, long-haired wigs, possibly to conceal some of his facial scarring, but also perhaps to cover up some of the psychic damage to his inflated ego and the inevitable fact of aging in such a youth-oriented music market. Hmm. Substance abuse, vicious misogyny, mood swings, impulsivity, and frequent bouts of rage increased based on reports of those around him during that time. He said during interviews that that at some point he was diagnosed and treated for bipolar disorder, his father's suicide, divorce from Ronnie, and the deaths of dear friends Lenny Bruce and John Lennon appear like his youthful fall from the pinnacle of professional success to have been devastating losses from which he never recovered. Hmm. He was short and slight in physical stature, and Spectre had no shortage of egotism, arrogance, nor talent. But clearly, his demons, inferiority feelings, narcissistic rage, traumatic loss, fear of abandonment gradually gained the upper hand, as happens with so many geniuses. Quote, I have devil. This is from Spectre. I have devils inside that fight me. So this is this is from an essay on evil and creativity. So Stephen Diamond goes on to say evil and creativity creativity and evil at first glance they seem contradictory antithetical mutually exclusive polar opposites yet on closer inspection creativity and evil represent two plausible existential responses to life both of which are present as a potentiality in every human being i don't know if i necessarily agree with that when artists invite the muse Whether they know it or not, they are setting a place for both her creative and destructive inspirations. Creativity is a dangerous vocation. Genius is a diamonic, daemonic, which is why, as one of my old mentors, Rollo May, pointed out, creating, actualizing one's possibilities always involves destructives as well as constructive aspects. No, they're like describing mutants right now. Yeah. And and saying that you can't create without destroying is is like seems to me to be like dime store psychology, but I don't have a PhD, so what the fuck do I know? And also like a blanket permission. So, in Life Imitating Art News, a 1974 movie called Phantom of the Paradise came out, and the villainous character whose name was Swan, played by Paul Williams was supposedly inspired by Phil Spector. He's a music producer and head of a label, and Swan was originally named Spector, but with an R-E, in the original draft of the film's screenplay. And what? In the, in the, yeah. 
In the film, a naive singer-songwriter played by William Finley is tricked by a legendary but unscrupulous music producer, Swan or Spectre, into giving up his life's work. And it's a rock opera based on Faust, but it is follows also the plot of Phantom of the Opera. So this guy's like disfigured. The composer dons a bizarre <laughs> new persona to terrorize the Sw- Swan's concert hall and have revenge on his favorite singer, Phoenix. It's very, it is very, Phantom very of the weird. Opera. This it's is Phantom very of the weird. Opera and Faust together. In 1977, Spectre produced Leonard Cohen's Death of a Ladies Man. Ooh. Friend of the show. This is from Rolling Stone. This was a marked contrast to the singer-songwriter's more somber acoustic affairs. Um, so this was, you know, he's still doing his wall of sound thing. In 1980, after four classic let it rip albums the ramones brought phil specter on to provide a makeover on the album end of the century legend has it that specter carried a gun during the ramones sessions and threatened the band members normal thing to do having a real normal one phil (laughs) according to the mail phil specter's son dante claimed that he and his brothers were abused by specter as children of course they were the quote is, there's a thin line between love and hate. That's the quote? Mm-hmm. From the kid. Woof. Yeah, right? By the time he entered, this is Rolling Stone again, by the time he entered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989, Spectre had effectively been retired from the music business for nearly a decade. He was inducted by both Ike and Tina Turner, who were separated at the time. Spectre... Ooh. Spectre had told neither that the other was also invited. Are you kidding me? Nope. Wow. Unless Rolling Stone's lying to me. (laughs) We can't rule that out. We definitely can't. Later, other women accused Spectre of violence and death threats, including a British pianist, Deborah Robitaille, or Robitaille, who said he once threatened her with a gun when she tried to leave his home. Spectre then apparently pulled out a gun and pressed it to her temple and she claims that he shouted something like if you leave i'll blow your fucking brains out that sounds like something phil would say yeah it it sounds on brand for phil that's for sure (laughs) yeah so on february 2nd 2003 once again when we know the exact dates of things shit's about to go down so right so buckle up On February 2nd, 2003, Adriano D'Souza, who is a Brazilian student and he was a stand-in chauffeur for Phil, collected Phil for an evening out and they visited a bunch of Hollywood haunts, Trader Vic's and Dan Tana's, which are like famous old guy Hollywood bars. They had a huge amount of alcohol, uh, Navy Grog, which I guess is 150 proof tequila. Hmm. They had like two dates before ending the evening at the house of blues two dates two dates they had like women that were hanging hanging out with them ah okay okay at the house of blues specter met lana clarkson who was 40 specter was 69 at the time nice um she was an actor and she was they keep in newspapers they reference her as like a b movie actor which i think is kind of mean but she was an actor and she had been in movies like you know mask of the aquaman and like really like kind of shitty sci-fi horror schlocky movies we can i i have a couple of her movies listed but she was working in the vip area at the house of blues at the house of blues 
I'm cutting out some of the misogynistic shit that is written in this article because it's a lot, if you can believe it. I'm shocked. Initially, she took the freakishly quaffed specter for a woman before being corrected by the management and being told to treat him like gold. After some persuasion, she agreed to go home with Spectre for a nightcap. They watched a movie called Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye in the back of his Mercedes limousine. You have got to be kidding me. No, I'm not. Because didn't Spectre use as his defense that she kissed the gun? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. They watched Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye and spoilers, listeners. (laughs) She's not, it's not going to end well for her in the back of the limousine driven by D'Souza. And they went up to Spectre's quote, Pyrenees castle, which was a 33 room turreted mansion perched on a hill in Alhambra, which is like a LA suburb. Two hours later, she was dead. So in the wee hours of the morning of February 3rd, 2003, Spectre was said to have uttered the phrase, I think I killed somebody. To who? 911? No, to D'Souza, the Brazilian student slash stand-in chauffeur. Okay. Behind him, slumped in a fake Louis XIV chair, lay the body of Lana Clarkson. She was found dead from a single gunshot wound to the mouth in Spectre's home in California. He claimed that she had accidentally shot herself or took her own life, but prosecutors believed that he had murdered her. I can't imagine why. <laughs> And they put him on trial, right? He loved the spotlight. Oh, God. He's hamming it up in court. He is. So, <laughs> so he provided other staples of the Hollywood justice story. He did a tirade on the steps of the courthouse, elaborate and weird haircuts, weird suits. <laughs> he had like a trophy wife at the time, bodyguards. And he told an interviewer that she, quote, kissed the gun. You never send me any pictures of this bizarre stuff. Uh, well, we can look at some pictures of Phil Spector, but well, the wigs are crazy. Uh, I want to see them. You want to see some wigs? Some yeah. Phil Spector wigs? There's so much to make fun of that his hair is not... We don't not need to the, make fun of his hair. I just need to, I just need to just see him check your doing his thing. So these are a couple of his choice wigs. He looks like um, a character from The Simpsons. Sure. Anyone in particular or... <laughs> Well, I don't watch The Simpsons, so... He looks like a corpse with a wig on. So, yeah, he had a series of wigs. One makes him kind of look like Pee Wee Herman. One kind of makes him look like Art Garfunkel. It ain't great. Whoa, whoa. What's wrong? (laughs) You don't stand for Art Garfunkel slander? Never. (laughs) Art's a weird guy, man. So shortly before the shooting that led to the arrest, end of 2002, beginning of 2003, journalist Mike Brown taped Spectre's like, first interview in years. And in 2007, Mick Brown sat down with NPR. And this is what he said. As soon as I sat down with Phil Spector, he ta- started talking about his mental state. I have devils inside of me that fight me. And I am my own worst enemy. And for all intents and purposes, I'm probably relatively insane. He said that in 2002. <sighs> so why the accidental suicide defense? Well, what, uh, what other defense could he possibly? I mean, uh, insanity? insanity. I suppose so. But I think that there's still a big part of his ego that is involved in this. And insanity is like not a defense that we really accept. Correct. 
and you know we've yeah we've seen some other people plead insanity to various <laughs> success or exactly or not success so in 2006 i have to stress this after the murder but before he was arrested phil specter married oh my god who the fuck married him i'm glad you asked he married a 26 year old actor named rochelle short show me her oh we're gonna talk a lot about rochelle is she okay yeah i think she's fine so this is this is rochelle and she looks like the dead girl she looks like lana clarkson which is upsetting this is so strange okay tell me about her tell me everything so rochelle short married phil Spector, and in 2010 which is spoilers after he was convicted of murder jesus christ she released a cd oh of course she did called out of my shell spelled c-h-e-l-l-e no uh, on which phil specter is listed as the producer this is his first production in 30 years and it would be his last would you like to listen to a little bit of out of my shell yes this better be as good as a little bit of lexus it's 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 very a little bit alexis vibes <laughs> so this is called here in my heart by rochelle specter you're here in my heart Whoa, those teeth here in my heart. no <laughs> no sorry this is not produced by phil specter Care right well say. he was in jail <laughs> he had been in jail for like a year yeah i know i got that <laughs> oh my gosh rochelle it's not worth it rochelle it's so not worth it what happened to you No, no. I in the dark. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Is she singing to Phil? I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, why would they do any of this? <laughs> this is bad. And for and for the guy who produced some of the greatest songs of all time, like like just put aside all of his crimes for a second, just for a second. How could he let this happen? Put aside all of his crimes. This might be the worst. Well, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, th- this is his biggest crime against music. <laughs> um, okay. So. I mean, we're pretty sure he has nothing to do with it. Rochelle Spector's music video for her new single, Hear My Heart, from her debut album, Out of My Shell. I can't. Out of my I know shell. you said it, but when yep. you see it on the screen, it's like it's so much more offensive. It's so much worse, yes. <laughs> uh, okay, we can stop that. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So, we're going to do a little bit of like a time timeline situation so i jumped ahead because he and rochelle got married in 2006 but let's jump back to 2006 even though out of my shell came out in 2010 okay take me back to 2006 so he's on trial right in 2007 he is doing this highly public trial it's televised he's wearing the weird wigs he's in the weird suits he's got his version of the dream team you know and 
in September of 2007, the judge declares a mistrial because the jury comes back deadlocked, 10 to 2. So 10 people want to find him guilty and convict him, and two people are not sure, right? And California requires a unanimous verdict to convict or acquit. So this resulted in a new trial. So they, yep. couldn't, they couldn't just let him go. They had to do a, a, a retrial. So this is in September of 2007. In December of 2007, Ike Turner died. And since Spectre wasn't in jail at the time and was awaiting his second trial, he attended the funeral. Mm, cash. And gave, casually. <laughs> and gave a eulogy about Ike Turner. Oh, I can't wait. Spectre, in his eulogy, this is a quote, in his eulogy, Spectre criticized Tina Turner's autobiography and its subsequent promotion on the Oprah Winfrey show as a, quote, badly written book that demonized and vilified Ike. Shut the fuck up. Spectre commented that, quote, Ike made Tina the jewel that she was. <gasps> when I went to see Ike play at the Cinegrill in the 90s, there were at least five Tina Turners on the stage playing that night. Any one of them could have been Tina Turner. Eat a dick. So, okay. But like, I would just like to remind you that he thinks his personal, he has said that his personal masterpiece was river deep mountain high which a is great but b does not feature ike turner at all at all so so how could it be a masterpiece if she's just one of a thousand irreplaceable well, women because everyone's a puppet to him right i know I, what he thinks right and I, but like, like let's discuss right because i think I he think takes full credit for it he takes full credit for it and i think he he saw this is total conjecture on my part but i i think i'm right which is, <laughs> i think he saw kind of a kindred spirit in ike uh -huh. in that a, a guy who used women to get what he wanted this is like complicated genius man whatever right in 2008 and 2009 there was a retrial and this time the judge gave the jury the option of considering a lesser offense like manslaughter when they deliberate over the verdict. So this is this takes a little bit of unpacking for people who like aren't SVU know, hosts. Yeah, who aren't SVU hosts. So <laughs> originally he was on trial for murder. And if it wasn't murder, like fuck it, right? It's nothing. It's nothing. And which is why it was 10 to deadlocked or one of the reasons why it could have been 10 to 10 to deadlocked. I wasn't there. But now the judge is like well you could do murder in the first murder in the second all the way down to manslaughter and so this was seen as an increase in the chances of a conviction sure also unlike the first trial this was not televised ah okay how do we think that affected it well he, he put on less of a show right so, so that this is made a, the jury uh i mean it 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 made it just made it less of a big fucking deal right mm -hmm. so i don't know whether it influenced the jury one way or another but it wasn't a circus is, it wasn't a circus this is what the guardian said for the second trial almost six years after clarkson's death specter downsized gone was the retinue of heavies that marched into the court with him every day the bodyguards and the lawyers the first time around he was accompanied by just one bodyguard and his young wife rochelle his legal team was reduced to a single lawyer whose name was doran weinberg and facing him was the same lead prosecutor from the first trial alan jackson 
This is a quote from Doran Weinberg um, in the second trial. Quote, the forensic evidence shows that Phil Spector is innocent, he said, listing 14 pieces of scientific evidence used by the defense in the trial. Spector's lawyers, this is back to the journalist, Spector's lawyers have argued that Clarkson was depressed over her faltering career as a B-movie actress. Um, okay, let's let's look unpack that a little. Uh, mm-hmm. Was her career, quote unquote, faltering? So this is a good question. And this is if you remember a few minutes ago, I said that I was cutting out some of the like misogynist bullshit that was being written about her. So this is every journalist as they're describing her. They're like, well, she was really she really loved attention. And so she not every journalist, but a lot of journalists were like she she loved attention so much and she wasn't getting them from her acting roles. And so she took a job at the house of blues so she could get the attention that she craved and that's why she hooked up with specter and i'm like that is a a lot of conjecture and b like fuck you seriously fuck you also i'm super annoyed this is a little bit tangential but related how the press constantly called her a b movie actress like they had to diminish her even in her death to try and make her seem less important make her seem less of a uh relatable victim i guess yes so i want to go through her imdb because she did she did some some famous movies but in very small roles so she her first role was in fast times at ridgemont high great but she plays like mrs vargas she's like a really really small role she was on three's company she was in scarface she was on the jeffersons she was in the um the bruce willis movie blind date um and then and she was on Who's the Boss? And then, and the A-Team. And then in 85, she started doing The Barbarian Queen and Amazon Women on the Moon, which I said, the mask of the Aquaman yeah, earlier. That's not real. Like, these was, are roles, right? Yeah, they're real roles. I mean, I'm trying to think of someone who we could compare it to today, and I, but not in an offensive way. Like, like Rose McGowan sort yeah. of Yeah, or I was so, even thinking like Busy Phillips, maybe. Like, yeah. You know, like Busy Phillips is awesome she's had many roles she does cool stuff stuff you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't i don't know if she and there are you know b movie is a thing right like the haunting of morella or barbarian queen 2 that's a b movie but like calling someone a b movie starlet conjures the idea of them on the on the poster in a bikini yeah and being tacky yeah and it's not like she wrote those fucking movies. She's not Roger Corman. She was just like taking the roles that she could get. Like, fuck you guys. So I wanted to yeah. I wanted to kind of cut it out in uh, some of the other things that they were describing and just like talk about it in one place. But yeah, this was the defense. The defense was she was depressed because she was a shitty actor. Lots of people are shitty actors and they're not depressed. Yeah. Lots of people are lots of things and they are depressed. I mean, yeah, this is just it, ridiculous. There's, there's no tangible connection. Right. To, to from one to the other she could have she also could have been depressed because she was a shitty actor or wasn't getting roles but like that doesn't mean that she killed herself at phil specter's house. right a man known for violence against women and like crazy gunplay also like let's take that out for a second like if you're a b-movie actor and you're dep- like let's let's say everything that the defense is saying is true you're a b-movie actor you're depressed that you can't get a job you're attend you're attention hungry you meet phil fucking specter and go back to his house like this is your shot like you could be clearly he's not above making 
talentless people famous as evidenced by his by <laughs> out of my shell <laughs> like like yeah it, it doesn't if you put like an ounce of pressure on it it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense back to the guardian without the theatrics of the trial weinberg's specialty was studied doubt right so he just wanted to cast doubt into all of the jurors because there's really no way to exclude specter from the murder the big evidence that the prosecution had was he told his limo driver adriana d'souza i think i killed somebody so that's that's a big one that's a big one but weinberg noted that he had been through eight variations of the phrase i think i killed someone i think i killed somebody i think i accidentally killed somebody whatever 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 in recounting the events to investigators so d'souza had said it slightly different Mm. every time or not every time but eight different according to weinberg eight different versions and surely that suggested sufficient doubt to acquit weinberg argued Spectre did come up against a barrage of evidence. So Clarkson had given no indication to literally anybody in her life that she was suicidal, which was the defense's, that was the defense's whole case. Um, Why would someone who was about to shoot themselves go out and buy multiple pairs of shoes recently? The trial had heard testimony from people that people rarely kill themselves on the spur of the moment and almost never at the home of a stranger. More damning for the defense was the judge's decision in both trials to allow evidence of prior acts by Spectre involving women and guns. A parade of women at both trials described how Spectre had turned from charm to menace, often fueled by alcohol and medication, his penchant for waving guns in people's faces, and they suggested an a- it was an accident waiting to happen. Right. It's OJ all over again. It's OJ all over again, right? Look, If you look at the it's it's weird because the jury the, like the legal system is based the laws are based in a vacuum on keeping prejudice away from the jury like oh he we don't care if he was a bad person in the past did he do this one crime but it is used in the exact opposite way in removing all context of this guy has had a 40 year history of doing this shit it's interesting because it's just the way the justice system works. You're innocent until yes. proven guilty. We can't speculate. We can't. Um, for some people, right? This is this is for some, the way. That, yes, this is the way it's supposed it's intended to work. To work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, so I wanted to know if fingerprints were found on the gun. So I just looked it up. And, and w- were they? No. A sheriff's fingerprint expert testified in record producer Phil Spector's murder trial Wednesday that latent fingerprints rarely are found on guns used in crimes, and none was found on the gun that killed actress Lana Clarkson. Quote, we only get fingerprints off guns 8 to 10% of the time, said Oof. Donna Brandelli, a sheriff's forensic identification specialist. She said prints rarely adhere to the shiny metal surface of a gun or a wooden grip, which has many ridges. Coincidentally, Brandelli noted in testimony on her experience and education that she is writing a doctoral thesis on the, quote, CSI effect and jurors yep. expectations based on their television viewing habits. Yeah, so this is from watching movies and TV, expect fingerprints to be a a science which it isn't and b present all the everywhere time, which, yeah which they're <laughs> not um but yeah pretty bad pretty bad but also like even even if there were fingerprints this guy is smart enough to know to wipe down the gun 
Right. So on a cross-examination, attorney Linda Kenny Baden asked the witness, just because you didn't get a latent fingerprint, can you assume that someone wiped the gun clean? No, said the witness. Yeah. So it just means the, we don't know anything. We don't. Yeah, we don't know who was holding the gun. Um, so the gruesome imagery from the crime scene also made an impression the defense found hard to dispel. Ooh. The dead actor, her. Uh, so this is once again, her little like movie dig they say the dead actor a cult success for her incarnation of the barbarian queen in the eponymous film was reduced to a film noir cliche the blonde, the blonde starlet sprawled on a chair the bottom of her mouth blown off a cult a, a 36 cult under her left leg specter's assertions to interviewers before the first trial that he was the victim of an accidental suicide never seemed more ridiculous well, they got one thing right. Yeah, I mean, but the but the you know they love big journalism or whatever loves to paint this like cinematic picture, which often is not. It's sensationalism and it's super disrespectful. It's super disrespectful to her, but like because it took place in Hollywood, they're like, all right, here we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so this is a from a law professor at the University of Southern California. Quote. If this were not Phil Spector with a load of money to spend, a trial like this would never have gone on for so long. Cases don't usually go to a trial when there's this much evidence against the defendant. Hmm. Okay. So, so, so OJ, o, OJ 2.0. April 13th, 2009, Spector is convicted of second degree murder. And in May, he's sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. And then a year later, Out of My Shell comes out with. <laughs> which lists lists Spectre as a producer. This is his first production in 30 years and his final thing that he's listed as a producer on. That's like a new recording, right? Things are repackaged. Like if they will, if they re-release a Ron Antsbach set, it would still be produced by Phil Spectre. So this is the first new, this is the last thing that he did that was quote unquote new. Okay. Did he comment on it? No. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, he kind of did, but so he commented on Rochelle, but not specifically on the record. Oh, what did he say about Rochelle? Well, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So in 2013, Phil Spector, the movie, was released on HBO. Al Pacino played Phil Spector. There were a lot of wigs. <laughs> of course there were. I and, love wigs. I love a good wig. And around the same time, he was moved to the California healthcare facility in Stockton, which treats sick inmates because he's old. He was born in 39. And so he's like in his 70s now. Yeah, he didn't look good. He wasn't looking good. Yeah. And uh, and he's had a lot of health problems, a lot of drug dr- drug situations, you know, a lot of drug situations. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because because all of the testimony at his trial and all of the stuff that everyone's talking about is like oh yeah he was using a lot of drugs he was drinking a lot like that's you know he was living yeah. hard for his using his bots yeah so the california department of corrections released a photo in 2014 of his of the 2013 like of the move and it showed evidence of progressive deteriorations in specter's health and this this became like a, a meme Right. Mm. So there was like a side by side of like him at the trial with his big hair and him, you know, looking like Mr. Burns. Exactly. Like Mr. Burns. (laughs) So this is him without the wig, without the 
professional stylist and makeup and you know him as a sick old man yeah you know he looks sad and terrifying yeah he looks pretty fucking terrifying especially (laughs) in the picture where he's smiling yeah i like the wigs better yeah well i prefer the wigs just let him have his wigs in prison (laughs) so in september of 2014 it was reported that specter had lost his ability to speak thanks to something called laryngeal papillomatosis what is that so laryngeal papillomatosis is also known as recurrent respiratory papillomatosis or glottal papillomatosis and it's got it's benign tumors in the larynx Mm. which is like it so the tumors are caused by hpv ew yeah and they narrow the airways and cause like air, and, and cause obstructions but like i th- the, the reason i included this is like you know irony spotting right like this guy who made his bones singing and playing music can no longer speak and no longer sing um and because of sex well, yeah, brought prob- down probably. to his knees by yeah. a woman. By a woman, Ha-ha! she got the last laugh, I guess. <laughs> um, so, from the Daily Mail in 2016, sad news: Phil Spector filed for divorce from, from Rochelle. Rochelle, Phil filed against her. Yeah, why? Because he knew he was going to die, her. and he didn't want to give her his money. So. This is a quote from the Daily Mail. Because she's splashing out on luxury sports cars, jets, and homes with his money while he remains behind bars. I'm going to read it in my Daily Mail voice because it's like a, it's like a, a tabloid rag, right? Yep. The 76-year-old music producer married Rochelle Short in 2006, just one month before he was charged with the murder of Lana Clarkson, who was shot in the head in Spectre's California mansion. Spectre is reportedly only allocated 300 a month as he continues to serve 19 years to life for second-degree murder in, in the California State Prison Healthcare Facility in Stockton. He filed for divorce because she was spending all of his money. And what did he expect? And what did he care? He was dying. Exactly. Isn't that the arrangement between sugar daddies and sugar babies? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he thought he she would be in love with him. But that was something that he was always really paranoid about, right? That's why he that's why Ronnie Bennett locked herself in the bathroom on their wedding night is Phil thought that she only was interested in him for his money. Wow, this guy's a interesting bird. And nothing if not consistent. <laughs> So on January 16th, 2021, so just about six months ago, at the age of 81, Spectre died outside of a hospital. Crickety croak. According to the California Department of Corrections, his daughter, Nicole, attributed his death to COVID-19. Oh, shit. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think the laryngeal whatever didn't help because the 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 papillomatosis because it's constricting his airways anyway so he gets covid he's like fucked yeah yeah complications of covid19 and specter was diagnosed with covid in december of 2020 just around his 81st birthday shit he would have been eligible for parole in 2024 oh my god really yeah that's whack super whack so once again, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Right. And then all of these actors and musicians were like, oh, we feel complicated about his death. Yes. So there's a ton of, of like eulogies and, <laughs> and 
obituaries about him. So I only want to read a couple. The okay. first one is from Lana Clarkson's mother. Ooh. This is from NPR. On Sunday after Spectre's death was announced, Clarkson's mother issued a statement. Lana Clarkson was a warm, compassionate, kind, loving woman who would be 58 years old now. Her energy, brightness, and love of life have sustained her family since her murder 18 years ago in 2003. That's from Donna Clarkson. Okay. She didn't have any kids, did she? No. Luckily, no. Okay. And so this is from David Thompson, who is the author of The Wall of Pain, the biography of Phil Spector, which was released in 04. The Wall of Pain. The Wall of Pain, right? That sounds complimentary. It, but it was released in 04, so it's just after the murder, but before he's on trial for it. So it's like only the first 75% of his, his story or whatever. But this quote is from him after Spectre died. Okay, recently. okay, okay, okay. He self-destructed in the most horrific manner. But we have to separate the two. There are so many people who were once revered that we find out they did something terrible. It wipes out all of their achievements, and I don't agree with that. Gross. Yeah. Thompson said Spectre's biography was one of his toughest to write because he wanted to solely focus on the music. But while working on the book, he found out about Spectre's conviction. Okay. Well, you know, don't research your heroes. Yeah. He goes on to say, that was a hard balance. I wanted to write about the music, just what he did, what he created and what he gave us. But you have to sort of balance it with the awful things he did. There, uh, okay. Well, sure. What's the balance? Where did the scales tip? And so this is the thing that we were just talking about is like, I think the two of us decide that the scales tip a little bit more toward humanism and justice <laughs> yeah. than David Thompson. And, da- you know, David Thompson's job is to write biographies of famous musicians. So like, I kind of get it, but like, not really. Hmm. But the most important obituary for me, other than Donna Clarkson's is Ronnie's. Oh, shit. So Ronnie Bennett, who still goes by Ronnie Spector, says, I loved him madly. And gave my heart and soul to him. Unfortunately, Phil was not able to live and function outside of the recording studio. Darkness set in. Many lives were damaged. As I said many times when he was alive, he was a brilliant producer, but a lousy husband. Hmm. I have a lot of conflicting feelings about mental illness and the processes and systems that are in place in our country specifically and stigmas that keep people from getting help. And, you know, Phil Spector seems like he had a lot of resources as far as money. So um, whereas I feel a little bit more sympathetic towards others who don't have the financial resources to get help, we haven't really created a society that is open and supportive of people getting the mental help that they need. Yeah, and and he was a clearly a broken person, scarred by family trauma, but that does not excuse him. No excuses. Pr- projecting more family trauma. It's like he's he is a famous monster and the system is built to create and foster these famous monsters. And so that's the thing that needs to change the most. That's the disease, not the symptom, you know. Yeah. That's it for this week. Oh, just going out on a high note. <laughs> yeah, he was a brilliant producer, but a lousy husband. That's it for this week. I think we got to go out on the Beatles to know her is to love her. Um, sources for this week are Song Facts, The Righteous Brothers, You Lost That, lost that Love and Feeling, Society of Rock, The Story Behind You've Lost That Love and Feeling, Wall Street Journal, Britannica, New York Times, BBC, NPR, The Grunge, The Sun, The Guardian, Psychology Today, NPR, 
and the New York Times, if I didn't say that already. And all the sources will be available on both of the episodes. In the show notes. In the show notes. So you can read more about it, see where I fucked up, get around the New York Times paywall, et cetera, et cetera. Just pay for news, people. Pay Pay for for news. news. (laughs) And tune in next week when we, Lindsay will be back at it. Please, please, Lindsay. Yes, I'm back at it. I'm here. I'm here for you. What are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about uh, a little love song called My Heart Will Go On. What the fuck? (laughs) Until then, you can get us on the internet. We're at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. You can rate and review us. Apple Podcasts is the best place to rate and review us. We love hearing it. And tell your friends about it because a lot of work gets in this show and we love hearing people's minds get blown or people get angry or people think that we're our opinions are wrong um (laughs) someone (laughs) laughed that i someone in in, on twitter laughed that i didn't realize that the i moved in you section of hallelujah was about sex because i'm an idiot um so yeah we love hearing from you and tune in next week and until then i'm aviv rubenstein i'm Lindsay tucker saying don't kiss your guns (laughs) oh fuck to know him is to love him (laughs) <laughs> Ciao. Just to know, no, no, her is to